Let's bow in a word of prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do feel in our hearts the last verse of that, that song, that our, our hearts are, are prone to wonder. Lord, we pray now that as we gather, as we come before your word, that you would take our hearts, that you would take and seal them for your courts above. Lord, I pray that we would put ourselves under your word, that we would submit to what it says to us. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be very active right now, guiding me and guiding us to be able to understand what you have for us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I appreciated hearing from Andrea this morning. That was riveting for me. I am involved in translation every week as well as I try to figure out what Greek and Hebrew words say. I can't imagine trying to add another language to that, going from Greek and Hebrew to the native language that I use of English and then trying to add Thai and Northern Thai to that. So I appreciate everything that, uh, that you must go through. And she only gave us a few examples. Can you imagine trying to work through the whole entire Bible, 66 books that way? Um, that is a lot of work, and uh, we need people like Andrea, people who are skilled in linguistics, to be able to get the gospel out to, to the nations. And she's a big part of that work, work and appreciate hearing from her. And if you want to hear more from her, make sure you head off to, uh, to the address that's in your bulletin there from is it 2 to 5 this afternoon, and uh, she'll, I'm sure, fill you in on, on more about her work. Well, today in our series on the, on the Minor Prophets, we want to make a little bit of a transition. And so uh, I thought as I start this morning, I need to again give you a little bit of background so you can uh, try to figure out exactly where we are in the, in the history of the Bible. We're now getting close to the end of the Old Testament, both in terms of uh, the books of the Old Testament and in terms of the, of the time of the Old Testament. And you'll remember, as I've uh, said a few times before, that Israel at this point in time had been divided into two. The northern kingdom, which uh, kept the name Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. The northern kingdom had been taken captive uh, to Assyria back in 722 BC. But Judah kept on going. They were in existence uh, until they were exiled by Babylon. Uh, first, there was one exile in, in the uh, late, how would that go now, 6th century, um, around 605 or so, and then in 586, when the last of the people were exiled and, and when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so most of the minor and the major prophets, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, uh, preached up to that point. So now the Jews were scattered all over the place. A few stayed back in Israel but most were moved to other places. They had no more land, no more temple, and really their identity was mostly gone by this point. But there was a small group who stayed faithful to the promises, what the Bible calls a remnant. And then in God's providence, Babylon, this, which is where the southern kingdom went, is defeated by Persia. And the Persians are ruled by a king named Cyrus. And if you go to the end of Second Chronicles, or you can also go to the very next book, the book of Ezra. The last verses of Chronicles and the first verses of Ezra say exactly the same thing. But in those verses, you'll read this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house. Remember, this is a, a foreign, a pagan king. Has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so Cyrus makes a decree that allows the Jews to go back to their land. This all happened in 538 BC. And you can read about the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which basically are parallel to Haggai in the book that we're studying next week, which is Zechariah. But these last three prophets in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, showed up during this time, this time when they returned. And they prophesy after these exiles come back to Jerusalem and to Israel. And so that kind of puts these events back into their time. And it brings us to Haggai. Remember that Cyrus's decree back in 538 was that God had appointed him to do what? To build a house in Jerusalem. That was the goal, that was their purpose, namely, the house of the Lord. Now go to the first few verses of Haggai. Let's just read those. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time to do what? For the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So now we have a different king, King Darius. Cyrus was first and now Darius. And so Haggai, we know from that, happens, must happen sometime later. And from the history of Persia, we can figure out that the events of Haggai the sayings of Haggai, the, the sermons of Haggai, happened right around 520 B.C. So you have 538 when Cyrus came, 536 is probably when they started rebuilding the temple, and now we're in 520, some 16 years after they got there. And that's kind of what makes all these dates important. That's why I'm giving you all this history. These people were supposed to go back for one reason and for one reason primarily, and that was to rebuild the house of God to rebuild the temple. But look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And so you can see there that the house isn't done. In fact, it had barely gotten started. They were there for 16 years, and they hadn't done what they were supposed to do. And we know from reading Ezra that, that there was some people that that outrightly opposed the project. And they might have gotten the people that were supposed to build it, these 50,000 people, by the way, around there, the number that came back, they might have gotten discouraged. But the fact is that God had brought them there to rebuild the house, and they hadn't rebuilt the house. That was the issue. That's the issue that has God send his man, Haggai, to have a little chat with his people. In fact, he has four little chats over about three and a half months, and that's what makes up the entire book. A short little book, but packed with convicting truths, packed with meaningful lessons, packed with words of comfort, packed with hope for the future. 
first thing we see there is that there is a confronting message. It all starts with the reason Haggai was sent there in this chapter. Look again at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So they've been there for 16 years. They had one project, and that project is not complete. This house lies desolate. It's still in ruins. According to Ezra 3, the foundation had been laid. But 16 years later, that's as far as they got on their goal. They hadn't done anything past building that foundation. They had actually aborted the project. But notice, it's not that they did nothing. They were doing work. They, they did expend energy. Only they expended their energy on making their own houses look good instead of the house of the Lord. That's why God confronted them. They say it's not time for the house of God to be rebuilt in verse 2. But God says in verse 4, is it time, uses the same thing that they brought up, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now panels is just another name for coverings. This material came from Lebanon. In that day, paneling on houses would be considered excess, luxury. These people began to be focused on their own comforts. That's what this is telling us. They were just dwelling in their paneled houses, and they abandoned the reason for which God sent them back. And more than that, they were essentially living comfortably in their own houses while God was homeless. That's the issue. We could say that they left God out in the street while they were laying around with their feet up on the couch. They had misplaced priorities. They put themselves above God. They centered their own efforts. They centered their own lives on themselves. And by doing that, they ignored God. That's what this is all about. That's what made God get in their face. This is what caused God to, to confront them. And it's that message for them that confronts us as well today. Could we be rightly accused of being so focused on our lives and on our comforts that we have neglected God? Before we address that, I just want to take one step back and answer why this is all, why I say this is all about God. Why do I say that God is being neglected here? The answer is because of what this house or what this temple represented. So what's so big about this house of the Lord? Well, in the Bible, the house or the tabernacle or the temple was the place where God was present. It was a visible reminder for these people that God was with them. It was the place where the, where the glory of the Lord appeared, where it resided, where it dwelt. And for the people, the temple would make a, a visible statement. It would give a visible message for all to see that they valued God, that they still wanted to center their lives around God. 
And so to set aside the priority of rebuilding the house gave the opposite message. They were making a statement essentially that they valued themselves more than they valued God. This, my friends, is a huge mistake. For God, this house is a symbol of his covenant to Israel, a symbol of his promise to always be with them. In this particular time, when he was regathering his people, the house pictured the fact that God did not abandon them, as it might have appeared it would because the temple was, being, was destroyed. He was still with them. To not rebuild this house sent a message to the nations that God may have abandoned them, that God was not for them, that he was not part of this return from exile. And because God is always jealous for his own reputation, his own name, he did not take kindly to this house that was now lying in ruins. And so the issue here is one of priorities, one of putting God first. This is the issue with which Haggai confronted the people. It's an issue that confronts you and me. Does your life show that you value the things of God? Or does it show that God has some sort of secondary or less place in your life where you fit him in when you have time? Or even worse, does your life show that you have ignored God? That you have essentially put him out on the street while you're sitting in your paneled house enjoying life? This is really the essence of our sin, isn't it? It's this sense of being so self-absorbed that God is of secondary importance to our own comforts, to our own entitlements. We're so busy with our lives that we aren't even aware of God's presence until we need him, that is. We're just like those people that the Lord quotes in verse 2. The time has not come. This isn't the time, Lord. Time has not come for the house to be rebuilt. This is not the time for me to acknowledge God's presence. I'll get to him when I need him, but this isn't the time. This failure to, face, to place God first in our affections and our priorities is very serious in God's eyes. Romans 1 changes the language from misplaced priorities to exchanged priorities. Talks there about the ungodly as having exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Or they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's all the same thing. It's not acknowledging God. It's not giving God his rightful place in your lives. It is dwelling in your paneled houses while the house of God lies desolate. Back in Romans 1, this exchanging of priorities has dire circumstances. Just as they did not fit to acknowledge, see fit to acknowledge God any longer, it says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So my brothers and sisters, what happens when we take God out of the picture? When we exchange him for a lesser thing? When we fail to prioritize him in our lives? Well, the first thing to go is our prayer life. We start to become so self-dependent that we no longer need God. We delude ourselves into thinking that our paneled houses are what's all satisfying. And so we don't pray. We don't call upon God. We've got life all figured out. Why would we need God? 
Eric Raymond put it this way. He says, prayerlessness is the fruit of the dying tree of indifference and apathy. Its roots drink the deadly streams of self-sovereignty and self-glory. Something to think about. The next thing to go after our prayer life is our time in God's word. Start to tell ourselves, why would I need to hear from God? I've got my life figured out. And then the next thing to go is your concern for others. Look at the way that verse 4 says it. You, yourself, dwell in your paneled houses. Basically saying, you're just in your own world. As long as you're happy, who cares what else is going out outside my little paneled house? Who cares what's going on in Haiti? This came home to me as someone in our church wrote something this week to that effect when she pondered what happened in Haiti this week. As she thought about the people of Haiti and the devastation, she became convicted of her own selfishness. And when I read what she wrote, I became convicted of my self-centeredness as well. But that's the way it happens, isn't it? We neglect God. This is not the time. And pretty soon that neglect turns into 16 years and we're left dwelling in our paneled houses, concerned only about ourselves. Christian, do not neglect God. In our day and age, we do not need to rebuild the house of the Lord. We, we are the temple of God. But are you really? Do you acknowledge God's presence in your life? How do you show that God is valued, that God is central, in your life. If you happen to be here today and you are not a Christian, ignoring God has deadly repercussions. You need to acknowledge that God is the one who created you. In fact, he made you in his image so that you would know and that you would love him. But the Bible says that we all sinned and, and by sinning even once, by breaking the law even once, we separated ourselves from God. We neglected God and we ignored God. And because of that, we have earned a death sentence. But the good news is that God in his love and in his kindness and in his mercy sent his son. He placed his son in this world, out in the open. He displayed him publicly, the Bible says. And this son did what no one else did. No one. He lived a perfect life. And yet he died on the cross. We have ignored and neglected God the Father. But if we neglect God the Son, we are in big trouble. And so the way to acknowledge God the Son is to turn from your sins and to rest all of your hope for life, for eternal life on him and on his death as he took the penalty for your sins on that cross. If you ignore what Jesus did in the cross, he will judge you and you will be guilty. But on the other hand, if you acknowledge his sacrifice for you, and that's called faith, you will be righteous in God's sight, and you will be able to stand before God, and you will be able to be in his presence forever. My friend, do not neglect Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Consider your ways. So that's the issue here in Haggai. He confronts a people who have become self-centered, confronts a people who have neglected God. 
But then something interesting happens here, something that we haven't seen yet in the Minor Prophets as we studied them. We have a model response. Look at verse, down at verse 12 of chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Here is a right way to respond to a confrontation from God. Here we have the right response to God's discipline in our lives. God confronts them with their misplaced allegiances in verses eight, and in verses eight to 11, he, he shows them how they have been disciplined. And again, in, in chapter two, he does the same thing. He shows them the discipline that happened because they weren't following the Lord. And then they respond in this wonderful way. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. They made a 180 degree turn in both their actions and in their attitude toward God. They go from being selfish and ignoring God to obeying and revering God. It's a model response to God when he gets in our faces and tells us, consider your ways. Makes us ask ourselves how we, as Christians, respond, to, uh, respond when we are confronted with our sins. In Haggai, God used the prophet to convict the people of their sins. But in the, in the New Testament, God places his people into a church. And one of the reasons he does that, I believe, is that so that people can lovingly and gently confront one another when they get off track. When their lives show that their priorities are out of whack. When there are noticeable patterns of sin that need to be corrected. This is all part of what it means to belong to a church to be part of a body, to be a, a member of the body, as 1 Corinthians 12 puts it. It's why I encourage all of you to consider membership. The church becomes one of God's means of correction as his word is applied to people's lives, as we allow ourselves to be account- accountable to other people. That can happen through preaching or it can happen as people interact with, with each other. It's one of the reasons that we encourage you to be in relationships with each other through care groups or ministry groups or or scrapbooking groups or whatever it is. The Bible says we need to be a part of each other's lives for the purpose of accountability. And this sort of accountability will result in purity. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another day after day. Remember, not just Sunday. Encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that just says if we don't do that, we're in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if we don't make ourselves accountable to other people. So God gives us the church to be able to do that, to hold each other accountable, to, to confront one another. But then how do you respond when you are confronted? That's the next question. Do you immediately defend yourself? Do you try to explain it away? 
Do you maybe take the therapeutic approach and, and blame it on someone else or on something else? Or are you thankful to God for the warning and then respond in obedience? After Haggai confronts the people, what do they do? They, they obey. They show reverence for the Lord. And then the Lord there stirs their spirit to get on with the work. And so another name that we could attach to this obedience on the part of the people is repentance. God brings conviction of sin, and they immediately respond by making a 180-degree turn to him in repentance. Verse 15 tells us that only, it's only 23 days, if you do the math, after the first prophecy from Haggai, that they're at work rebuilding the house of God. They did consider their ways, and they obeyed. They repented. It's a good reminder for us. We need to be willing to be confronted and to be convicted by God's word, by God's people, by God's church. We need to show reverence for the Lord by understanding that he is holy. And then we need to pray for God to stir our affections and to turn back to him in obedience. Well, a couple of final lessons from this little book of Haggai. If you keep reading into chapter 2, you'll notice that God speaks through Haggai again. The building project started up again, but it becomes very obvious that this temple that they were building would not look anything like Solomon's temple. And so Haggai asks there in verse 3 of chapter 2, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? In Ezra 3, it says that while the young people, the younger generation, were rejoicing that the word of God was going ahead, the older generation that had been around during the times of the old temple were wailing even louder than the young people were partying. And so discouragement set in. And God sends Haggai in again, this time not to confront the people, but to encourage them in their work. They needed a word from God to keep at it. And so in verse 4, but now... Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. They needed assurance that even though the temple that they were building looked nothing at all like the, Sol- like the majestic temple that Solomon had built, It was all part of God's plan. And so he assures them here of his continuing presence. I'm in this. I'm with you. I know exactly what's going on. You just keep at it. You work. Even though they had repented and were now obeying God, it didn't mean that everything would be easy sailing for them. There would still be discouragement. And this is a good lesson for us as well. Being a a Christian doesn't necessarily mean all hard times will be over no matter what people promise you. God does not promise an easy life in paneled houses. While we are on earth, while we are in these bodies, in this temple, if you want to put it in New Testament language, there will be pain. There will be hardship. There will be death. There will be times when we get discouraged. We can count on it. The world is a, is a messy place. But don't let that discourage you from obeying, from persevering, from walking with God, from doing hard things, from staying in the faith. 
Keep at it. God is with you. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? And then he answers, If God is with us, who is against us? Will we always understand his ways? Will we always understand why things happen the way they do? No. But we can take courage because we know his spirit is abiding in our midst. And so Haggai also gives us a word of hope for the future there, fourthly. The reason this band of exiles could be hopeful, even though they could have been discouraged, is the last lesson in this book of Haggai. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Skip down to verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. wish I could explain more about what that signet ring means, but I haven't got the time this morning. But suffice it to say that Zerubbabel while he goes off the scene after this, shows up in the genealogies in, in Matthew as in the line of David and then in the line of the Messiah. That's what it means to be that signet ring there. But these words here are filled with hope. Even though things might look a little dreary now for some of these people, even though they will face discouragement, opposition, and other things, they can keep at it because they know God has something great in store in the future. Verse 9 is an astounding promise. The latter glory of this house, this junky-looking thing, will be greater than the former. This thing that they were building, this inferior-looking temple, would actually be greater than Solomon's temple, where apparently I read this week that the gold just in the Holy of Holies would be worth more than, in today's currency, more than $50 million. So what is this greater glory that Haggai's talking about? Well, we know that King Herod actually took this temple, the one that they were building, and expanded it and made it beautiful a few centuries later. But I think this is talking about more than just physical appearance. This is talking about the future coming of the Messiah, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This greater glory of God would be present in this temple in the person of Jesus. In a little while, as verse 6 says, he would be walking around this temple. And even more than that, Jesus actually embodied the presence of God, which the temple represented. This symbol was no longer needed. He was God in human flesh. He was God's temple. Listen to the language of John 1.14. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory. See the temple that these people in Haggai were conscripted to build all looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. This temple was all part of God's big picture plan and it made way for the apex of his plan of saving his people, namely the coming of the Savior. 
what seemed like an insignificant project that had no resemblance to past glory would far surpass even that by an infinite amount. And so Haggai gave these people hope that what they were doing was hugely significant and that it pointed to their long-awaited hope and that hope was in the person of the Messiah. They couldn't quite see it very clearly back then like we see it now. But they, all they knew from these words of Haggai was that what they were building had benefit for the future. And so it is with us. How can we keep from getting discouraged when things are going sideways all over the place? Globally, we see the devastation in Haiti and we, and we wonder. We hear about four-year-old children dr- drowning closer to home and, and we wonder why. We continue on. We obey. We, we labor on. We keep praying. We, we keep God at the forefront of our lives. Why? Because we know that God knows the future. We know that God has a purpose, incomprehensible, understandable to us, but a purpose in it all. We know from God's word that he is sovereign, that there are no surprises with him. And we know that one day, in a little while, God will shake the heavens and the earth as this Savior comes again. And on that day, Revelations 21 tells us, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so just like the people of Haggai, we who are believers, we who are God's people, we who are God's temple, can take courage. Even though our world is filled with pain, even though our world is filled with suffering, filled with hard labor, our labor is not in vain. God is using our toil for future glory. A glory that far surpasses anything that we can imagine. One of the most important sections in the New Testament, a verse that has been very comforting to me, a verse that I have used to comfort others, with regard to our struggle is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, all of those. But one of the verses in that section says, and just listen to the present and future comparisons. It says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction. Doesn't seem momentary, doesn't seem light at the time. But that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And so I encourage all of you this morning to take lessons from the book of Haggai and to allow them to encourage you to press on in the work of God. First thing you need to do is make sure your priorities are in the right place. This is of utmost importance here in this book. Don't hear anything else of this book, hear that. Put God first. Do not shove him aside for a life of comfort in your paneled houses. Make sure your priority is in line. And then get back, get on with the task of making disciples, of building up the body of Christ. If this is the part of this book that has convicted you, then I urge you to consider your ways, to repent. Listen to the voice of God and, and straighten things out in your life. Order your life according to God's word. And if you have been obedient but are discouraged, Take courage that God is with you. 
and that there is a future awaiting you and an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this reminder from your holy word about our priorities. We pray that you would help us this morning to see your infinite worth and that you would help us to see the, <clears throat> the, the folly of putting anything before you in our affections and in our desires and in our longings. Lord, I pray that if there are those of us here this morning that have misplaced priorities, Lord, that we would take time to reflect on what you're telling us here and that we would give you the honor, the respect, reverence that you deserve. And if there are, if there are those that are discouraged, that they have been obedient and yet life seems to be in shambles, Lord, we pray that the words of Haggai to these people, to be strong, to take courage, to keep at it, would be of encouragement to them. Pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need convicting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.